interesting to learn from a man who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Isn't that incredible? 500 years roughly before the birth of Christ. Nehemiah, if you'd like to turn there, we'll be uh, starting in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 today, ending at verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the month of Nisan, this is approximately four months, four of our calendar months after the incident where Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem and he just sat on the floor and wept and then mourned for a couple of days. So it's about four months later. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Remember Craig explained to us last week that you didn't display negative emotions in the presence of the king. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He didn't even mention the name of Jerusalem because King Artaxerxes, in a, in a, a number of years before, had actually forbidden the people of Israel from rebuilding the walls. We read about that in Nehemiah. He didn't even mention the name of the city. He just says, the city of my ancestors. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Can you imagine being given a blank check like that? What is it that you would want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. He must have, have you ever done one of those prayers? Just on the spur of the moment, Father God, please help me. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Bated breath. What's going to happen? Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Quite, quite a bold request. He's even asking about building a, um, a house for himself. And because the gracious hand, listen to this, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Isn't that remarkable? And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites, long-standing enemies of the Israelites. They didn't want to see Israel, the Israelites being restored as a military presence in their area. We received a, a very sobering phone call on the 1st of July 2013 from our GP to say that Gail had cancer. 
and it turned out to be non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a slow-growing form of lymphoma, and it's very difficult to treat. So for the rest of 2013 and going into 2014, um, Gail was undergoing chemotherapy. And then in February 2014, we, we had a, a great day when Gail was declared to be in remission. But the rest of 2014 was still a very stressful year because we were hurting as a family, we'd been through a lot, and it took time for us all to recover. And Gail also had regular checkups because there was more chance of the lymphoma coming back in those early stages than further on down the line. And so she had to go for regular checkups. But towards the end of the year, Gail started to dream about a family holiday and then going forward into 2015. But this wasn't going to be a regular holiday. It wasn't going to be a predictable holiday. It was going to be a grand adventure to celebrate the fact that she had been given a new lease on life. It was going to be a holiday when the family could bond together because we'd been through a stressful time. And it was also a holiday just to seize the moment. We'd learned during this period of time that you need to make the most of every moment in your life. So we wanted to, to make the most of a holiday being together and to create some memories. And also, Catherine was leaving towards the end of the year to start her university. And so Gail, without even telling us, she started to imagine us as a family in Zanzibar, diving amongst the tropical fish, lying on beautiful beaches, sailing on a dhow, visiting the House of Wonders in the ancient city of Stonetown. She started to dream about these things. In other words, she started to have a vision for the future. Andy Stanley defines a vision as a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. And Gail was convinced that we, we shouldn't go on an ordinary humdrum holiday. This was to be a celebration. It was almost like to be a statement to the, to the world, even to the forces of darkness, that God is amazing. God has brought healing. We're together as a family. We want to strengthen our family because, after all, families are the building blocks of society, aren't they? So Gail had a vision. And what I discovered is that when a mother has a vision for her family, there's no stopping her. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether there isn't any money in the bank. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like being put out of your comfort zone. A vision is a very powerful thing. And Andy Stanley explains to us in his book, and I'm going to be relying quite a lot on this book um, in today's preach, and if you'd like to go and read it, it's called Visioneering. It's an excellent book. But he says that a vision weaves four things into our daily experience. So let's have a look at those. Number one, it weaves passion into our daily experience. A vision is always accompanied by strong emotion. And the clearer the vision, the stronger the emotion. So Gail's very clear vision of being in Zanzibar, swimming amongst tropical fish, etc., etc., that enabled us to experience in the present the emotions that we would feel when we were on a beach in Zanzibar. And of course, those sorts of emotions are hugely motivating, aren't they? 
And so that's the next thing that a vision does, is it brings motivation into our daily experience. Suddenly, all sorts of things that you don't particularly like doing, suddenly things that are just mundane, become things that you want to do because they are a means to getting to your vision. And so for us, it was uh, going to queue at the Zambian embassy to get visas to travel through Zambia. It meant going for our yellow fever vaccination. It also meant traveling for 1,900 kilometers, two and a half days and two nights on a filthy train with messy toilets. But we were prepared to do that because it was the only way we were going to get to our holiday. We didn't have enough money to fly. It was only going to cost us $42 each to travel from Kapiri and Poshi to Dar es Salaam. And as it turned out, that trip on the train was probably the highlight of the holiday. We just thoroughly enjoyed it. Can you imagine being in, maybe for some of you this would be a nightmare, but can you, can you imagine being in, in a single carriage, in a, in a cabin, just you and your family for two and a half days, no cell phones, no telephone, no um, games, no internet, just being together. It was wonderful. So, we had the motivation. Then the next thing is direction. A vision provides you with some sort of a road map which helps you to make decisions. So when you're faced with a number of different options, you will choose the option that will get you closer to your vision. Yes, that'll be a yes. If that option takes you further away from your vision, then it becomes a no. It gives you direction. And then the last thing that it does is it gives you a reason to get up in the morning. Because you recognize that if you don't get up and get certain things done, in my case, um, organizing a, a, a bank card that we would be able to use in Zanzibar in case we ran out of money. If I didn't get up and do those things, then the vision was going to be realized. And so it gives us a purpose. At this stage, I'd just like to, to point out that you can learn all of this from a secular motivational book. There's all sorts of speakers and books out there about vision. But what is it that differentiates a Christian with a vision with someone who doesn't serve God and a vision? The thing that differentiates them is that a Christian has a vision that is divinely inspired. You see, God has a vision for your life. He's got a vision for your work. He's got a vision for your family, for your marriage, for your friendships, for your leisure. He has a vision for your life. And the reason why he has a vision for your life is because behind that vision is a meta vision that he has for mankind. God is not happy with the state that mankind is in. And he has a vision to change our condition, to change the condition of mankind. And so that's why we don't just run after any old vision. That's why we don't run after a vision which is simply selfish and to do with us. It is a vision about what God is doing, trying to get our life aligned to what God wants us to do. And all divinely inspired visions in some way are tied into God's master plan. So that's the difference. So, a vision is a powerful thing, as I discovered. Gail got me way out of my comfort zone and we went off to, to Zanzibar. But how does a vision begin? Well, a vision begins as a concern. Now, if you take Nehemiah, for example, do you remember when we read last week that the people who had come from Jerusalem told him about the state of the walls and the state of the people in Jerusalem? He said, you know, they're in disgrace. 
Um, it's, a sh- it's shameful, actually, the way they're living. And we read that he just sat down on the ground and wept. So a vision starts with your heart being broken. It starts with a concern. What is it that breaks your heart at the moment? And that's what you need to ask because it's one of the first steps to finding the way to the vision that God has for you. We need to, to pay attention to what grabs our attention. If something grabs your attention, you think, this should not be, it shouldn't be like this. And it starts to become a burden. Often in Christian circles, we talk about a burden, isn't it? Something that weighs us down. Then maybe that's a God-given burden. And especially if it doesn't go away. If you find that week after week, month after month, you're still concerned about that thing. It still plagues your mind. You still think about it. Then the chances are a vision is being birthed in your heart. Here's the next thing that we learn from today's passage. A vision does not necessarily require immediate action. And we've seen this with Nehemiah because when he first felt that concern, it was four months until he took action. Quite a long time. I would like to say that we would be ill-advised, folks, to take immediate action on every issue that concerns us. Everything that we look at and we think it shouldn't be like that. And even when we're sure of the vision, and we're sure that it's a vision that comes from God, we need to act in time with God. Nehemiah could have decided um, it was best to react immediately. After all, it was God's vision. It tied in with what God had been saying from generations past. Um, and, but the thing was that he was a servant of the king, and if he'd acted immediately, he would have had to escape as a fugitive slave. And where would that have got him? It wouldn't have got him anywhere. And in fact, Nehemiah, having to wait for four months, he actually got off really lightly. Moses had to wait for 40 years. It's a long time. Do you remember the mess of things that he made when he first reacted? He knew that this was a vision from God to take the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. And he knew it because God had promised this to his ancestor Abraham. And he told Abraham, after 400 years, my people are going to be taken out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt. So what did he do? He acted on it immediately, went out, murdered an Egyptian, and we all know what happened. He had to run away, and then he was in the desert, busy herding livestock for his father-in-law for 40 years. So God often makes us wait. And I love this one phrase that Andy Stanley used. He says, he says over and over again, time is your friend. We often tend to think that time is our enemy, don't we? We feel threatened. We feel like it needs to be done now. But actually, time is our friend. What happens when we wait? First thing is that the vision is authenticated. And at this point, we're trying to figure out, is this a God idea or is this just a good idea? How do we authenticate it? The first thing that we find out is that a God-ordained idea will eventually feel like a moral imperative. In other words, as time goes on, we begin to develop such a conviction that this needs to be done that not doing it would constitute being sinful or rebellious to God. And so we get this feeling that actually I would be sinful 
if I didn't do this, if I didn't pursue this vision any further. And the second thing is that a God-ordained idea will line up with what God is doing in the world. Here's some quotes. Let me just read them to you because I think they will express this a lot better than I could. Like a good earthly father, our heavenly father has a vision for each of his children, a vision that lends support to his work in the world. It will become apparent how the thing you feel compelled to do connects with what God is up to in this generation. I love that bit in the Bible where it says that David died and went to be with his ancestors and he had served the purposes of God in his generation. You see, God has purposes for us in this generation, things that only we can do. And we need to serve those purposes in our generation. And so it'll become apparent as time goes on that the vision that God has given you and that, is, that he's clarifying in your mind is something that enables you with other people to serve the purposes of God in your generation. So the vision is authenticated as we wait. The next thing that happens is that the vision matures in us. As time goes on, we begin to get clarity. And if a vision stands a long test of time, it's more likely to be a divinely inspired vision. If you come to me and you say, I've, I've, my heart's been broken to do X, Y, and Z, and I ask you, well, how long ago did this happen? And you say, uh, about a week and a half ago. I would say to you, look, there's, there's a good chance. I'm not saying that this isn't something that God is asking you to do, that you need to throw the weight of your life behind. But let's wait a little bit longer. Let's see how you feel in another week's time, in a month's time, does that burden still weigh heavily on your heart? Number three, we mature in preparation for the vision. God is using your circumstances to prepare you. And we could see from the life of Moses, couldn't we, that Moses just was not mature enough. He was far too impetuous. He lost his temper far too easily. He wasn't ready to take all those hundreds of thousands of people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so he spent all that time maturing out in the desert, looking after livestock, and also getting to know the area that he was going to be taking the people of Israel through. So we mature in preparation for the vision. And then the last thing, number four, is that God is at work. It often seems to us that nothing's happening, but God is actually at work preparing a way for us. I'm sure that Nehemiah thought that nothing was happening in that four-month period whilst he was busy praying and planning. But actually, God was preparing the heart of the king. And so suddenly that amazing moment arrived when the king said to him, well, what is it that you want? Here's a blank check. My word, God had been working behind the scenes. He is at work. So those four things um, happen as we wait. But what should we be doing as we wait? Doesn't imply the fact that we're waiting doesn't imply that we're not doing anything. And the first thing is we pray. Prayer is such an important thing because it helps us to keep our eyes on the lookout for opportunities and for what God is doing so that we can then act in concert with what he's doing. And also I think that there's a, con there's a, a component of prayer that has to do with sanctifying our thinking, cleaning it up, 
clarifying our thinking. thinking. So when we're praying, we're actually thinking and we're inviting God to guide us, to clarify our thoughts, and to make sure that the way we're thinking is in line with his ways and his principles and his ideas. Now, Craig did an excellent job just unpacking the role that prayer played last week um, when he looked at the early part of Nehemiah's story. But we learned, from, learned something new from today's passage. Nehemiah seemed to pray more for opportunities than he prayed for miracles. Isn't that interesting? He prayed more for opportunities than for miracles. Our tendency is to pray for a miracle. But a miracle doesn't require us to get involved. And God wants us to get involved. In most situations, it's more appropriate for us to pray for opportunities. So Nehemiah didn't say, Oh, Father God, please repair the walls of Jerusalem. Send somebody to repair the walls. He prayed for an opportunity to go himself and rebuild the walls. It's very significant, isn't it? But many of us are not in that place. We're not in that place where we're prepared to go out of our comfort zone and to partner with God. But this is what we're created for. We're created to work with God and to do exciting things to extend his kingdom so that we will get the joy and he will receive the glory. Nehemiah, this is very significant, he was a visionary and not a dreamer. What's the difference between a visionary and a dreamer? A dreamer is somebody who dreams about things being different. A visionary is someone who envisions things being changed and he himself getting involved in bringing about those changes. Dreamers dream about things being different. Visionaries envision themselves changing things. That's very significant. So first thing is to pray. The next thing is to plan. Let's just have a look at Nehemiah's plan. You can, you can follow it. I've paraphrased it here. Step number one, there's seven steps. Convince the king to allow me to leave his service in order to rebuild the wall around the city that in years past posed a military threat. How on earth do you do that? But it was part of the plan. God's going to work out how to do it. I'm getting it into my plan. This is what I need. I need to convince the king. Step number two, convince the king to lend financial support to the building project. I can't afford to do this by myself. The people in Israel can't afford to do it. Let's ask the king to fund it. Step number three, procure letters from the king to the governors in the surrounding areas, asking them to provide me safe conduct along the way. Step number four, work out a deal with Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, to procure enough lumber to build the city gates as well as a home for me. Step number five, ask the king for the title of the governor of Judah. That's bold, isn't it? There's no point in going back there unless I go with authority. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to get this job done. Step number six, organize and equip the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Step number seven, begin construction. Often, it seems almost insane to be planning, making a plan when nothing seems to be happening, when we're just waiting. But often that's the best time to make a plan so that when the opportunity comes, we can grab the opportunity. You know, Nehemiah didn't have to stand there in front of the king and pick his nose and scratch his head and say, um, uh, yeah, what I think, yeah, well maybe, no. He knew exactly what it was that he wanted to ask. And so this is what we do. 
We pray for opportunities and plan as if we expect God to answer our prayers so that we're ready when those opportunities arise. Think about the vision that you have. Do you have a plan? Often the problem is that we concentrate too much on the how of the vision rather than on the what of the vision. And we'll get onto that now. This is the fourth thing. So vision is a powerful thing. A vision begins as a concern. A vision does not necessarily require immediate action. And then lastly, a vision originated by God is orchestrated by God. If God originates something, then it's his responsibility to orchestrate it, not ours. One of the biggest threats to your vision is trying to figure out how, the how of the vision. How am I going to make this happen? You know, I can't think of a single story in the Old Testament or New Testament where a person was given a, a vision that it wasn't an impossible vision. In every case, it was impossible. And those people would never have gone on to fulfill those visions if they had got too hung up on the how. They just believed that God would help them figure out the how. They just had to concentrate on the what of the vision. Just review Nehemiah's seven-step plan, as, as we talked about it just now. Most of the things that needed to be done in that plan were utterly beyond his reach. And if he'd focused on that fact, he would have given up. So when the how seems out of sight, it's tempting to put the what of the vision out of mind. We just start to forget about it, forget about that vision. That's why we need to focus on the what of the vision and leave the how up to God. Be faithful to do what you can whilst trusting God to do what you can't. Any divinely inspired vision will drive you to remain focused on God. For such visions are a reminder of our dependence on God. Do you remember Peter when he was walking on the water? When he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, the how wasn't a problem. He wasn't asking himself, how am I doing this? He just had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And we need to be like that. And it's one of the wonderful things about having a vision is it actually forces us to keep our attention focused on God and on Jesus. Not on our own strength, not on our own ability. It keeps us God-centered. It causes us to grow as Christians and believers in the faith. Brothers and sisters, we believe that God is calling us to be a transformational, transformational church. We want to be a church that changes people. And the reason for that is that how can we be a church that represents God and the gospel if we aren't seeing people being changed? Because the gospel is all about change. And so we want people who come to Harvest to be changed. We want people to be released from their addictions. We want people to be released from their greed to money or to sex or whatever it happens to be that is holding them back. We want people to be transformed. We don't want to be the same people today that we were a year ago because the gospel doesn't want us to be like that. And so our vision is to be a transformational church. And not only a transformational church, but a church that provides an environment where people of all generations and ages can be transformed, whether they're babies or elderly people. That's what we want to be like. And the reason why we're talking about vision, why it's so important for you to go away and ask God, well, what, what vision do you have for my life? Is because by pursuing that vision, you will be transformed. Yeah. And 
transformation will go beyond you to society and your place of work and your friends. Can you see that? That's why it's so important for us to have a vision. And so I would encourage you, as we go through this series, to be seeking God and saying, God, what, is, what vision do you have for me? It can be a very um, simple thing, like a, a family holiday. It can be something to do. I remember chatting to somebody in the church who said, I would just love to be able to provide a place where street people could go and have a warm shower. <laughs> There's another vision. And it's a very clear vision, isn't it? You can imagine people who are, are destitute being able to strip off all those smelly, dirty clothes and have a nice hot shower. It's a wonderful vision. We want to be having those kinds of visions. And particularly when they're God-ordained visions. So should we pray and just invite the Lord to help us as we pursue this process. Father God, it's so inspiring to know that you have a vision for each one of us. It's humbling, Lord, to recognize that you want to partner with each one of us. It's mind-blowing to think that you would attach so much value to each of us, that you would be prepared to put your mission for this world in our hands. It's amazing, Father. And we thank you that you have chosen to do that. We thank you that every person in this congregation has the potential to work with you to make a difference in this world, to align themselves to that meta plan that you have to save mankind, to transform mankind, to change things into what they should be. And so as a congregation, Father, we want to commit ourselves to pursuing um, the visions that you have for us. Lord, help to bring clarity in our minds. Lord, speak through our emotions. Show us what's breaking your heart so that it will break our heart as well. And Father, give us the courage and the faith to step out of our comfort zones and to get involved in, in doing things that will bring transformation both to us, to our families, and also beyond. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.